Welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. We've got two terrific guests with us in the studio today. Christina DiConcini is our Director for Government Affairs. Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. It's nice to be here. And Forbes Tompkins is a research analyst with the Climate Impacts Program. Forbes, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me as well. You two have been working to get together, and Forbes, I understand you are the lead author on a new uh, report that we're releasing today, a working paper, in fact, Roadmap to Support Local Climate Resilience, Lessons from the Rising Tides Summit. Christina, what was the Rising Tides Summit? The Rising Tides Summit was a unique gathering of close to 40 mayors and elected officials from 18 of the 23 coastal states in the United States with an equal number of Republicans as Democrats, which was incredibly important point about it, that came together to talk about climate change and sea level rise because in each of these localities, these mayors are grappling very much with this and need policy solutions as a result. And what is interesting is that it really was bipartisan in nature, and this report is a readout from that and an exploration of the policies that are needed that are supported on a bipartisan level in order for communities to protect themselves from ongoing sea level rise. So you organized this back in October, I believe, in New Hampshire? In 2015, October, yes. During the primaries. At that point, most people thought that Donald Trump didn't stand a snowball's chance in the underworld. And now we're in a totally different world where we have a president-elect who's expressed uh, skepticism that climate change is real and has made a whole raft of appointments that we've been tracking here at WRI that are mostly oil patch people, uh, many of whom are either climate deniers, climate skeptics, or people who have worked actively to deceive and mislead the American public about the nature of the climate change threat. Now you're bringing out this paper saying, hey, we've got bipartisan support. Everybody's really worried about rising sea level. What sort of reception do you think that's going to get? Well, I think that you've hit on where the tension is between this, because while we definitely have signals coming out from the administration that there may be people in there that are going to question climate change, what we're seeing on a local level across the country is completely different from that. When the waters are coming in and you're a mayor, they you don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, you have to take these issues on. And we also know that you can't stop the facts by saying they're not facts. These impacts are gonna continue to increase with time. And so will the voices of local officials calling for this. More importantly though, the solutions that we're pr- putting forward, that Forbes has put forward as the author of this report are very common sense solution and they will create jobs, and more importantly, they're going to save taxpayers a lot of money, both things that this administration says they care about. Because if you're going to build a new power plant or a new school, you need to um, do it in a way that it will last, and that's what some of this is about, about building resiliency. Forbes, Christina made a reference to facts. Before we get into the recommendations, um, you're well-versed in the nature of these challenges. We've all seen, uh, most recently, the fires in Tennessee. I've been around a long time. I don't recall, you know, forest fires, something happens out west. Suddenly we've got forest fires happening uh, in the in the humid, used to be humid, south. We've had this uh, rising. So what are the facts in terms of climate impacts that local officials in the United States are coping with? Yeah, it's a great question, and the facts are pretty overwhelming. Um, I think in the last decade, the federal government has incurred over $350 billion in costs from extreme weather events just alone. Wildfires in 2015, it was the first time 
that we've seen uh, more than 10 million acres burned in the U.S. Uh, and we're seeing coastal effects. There was the focus mainly of this rising tides event uh, was over 300 to 900 percent increases in coastal flooding just from high tides in the last 50 years that are taking place along all three coasts of the contiguous U.S. And of course, we're all familiar with um, disasters like Hurricane Sandy. I think one of the interesting things, and Christina, this was maybe your insight, is that while people might argue about whether a particular storm or a particular fire is the result of climate change, and certainly the increase in the numbers of these things, scientists are quite sure that this is a result of uh, climate change, that in the case of rising seas, it's pretty much clear that the ice caps are melting and that when the ice caps melt, the sea level rises. So around that one, there's maybe the least wiggle room for doubters. Yes, that is absolutely true, and Forbes can speak to that more than I can, but there's very good scientific consensus on the attribution between sea level rise and our warming planet and expanding oceans. So I would just I want to go back a little bit to the story. So you did the Rising Tide Summit. One of the things, Christina, that you and I worked on together here was to try and get climate change into the national debate. Um, I would say, you know, we and others who tried to do that didn't have a resounding success, but we did have one success that came directly out of your work in the debate that happened in Florida, where I think it was the CNN uh, debate moderator who asked a question about climate. Tell us that story. Right. Well, we um, have worked with a lot of Florida mayors who are bipartisan, and they sent a letter to the debate moderator moderators for both the Democrat and Republican debates that were held last March in Florida saying that it would be unconscionable, I believe the word they used, for um, to hold a presidential debate in Florida and not ask about this question when the state itself is really threatened and at risk. And we were very pleased that on the Republican debate, the um, moderator not only asked that question, but had followed up specifically with the mayor of Miami, who's a Republican, Mayor Regalado, and spoken to him specifically about this issue. So he was able to ask a question that went along the lines of Mayor Regalado says this is the premier, most important issue for the city of Miami, and sort of trying to point out the disconnect between that and the candidates on stage. As I recall, he pushed uh, Senator Marco Rubio very strongly, since Rubio is from Florida. Yes. Unfortunately, he did not then turn the question to candidate Trump, and we didn't have an opportunity for him to share his views on this nationally. And now we're sort of saying, well, he tweeted that it's a Chinese hoax made up to uh, disadvantage the United States. And then he says, no, I didn't say that in another debate with Clinton. But now his appointments suggest he may be a skeptic. On the other hand, Uh, His uh, supporters say don't take him literally, so we're a little unclear about his views. And it would would have been great if somebody could ask him about his own property in Florida, which he has quite a bit, which is quite at risk, both on the coast and his golf courses. It would be interesting to be able to get him to respond to what he's going to do about that as a businessman. He's very smart, I'm sure, and will be interested in understanding that. So... We have this odd situation where you have potentially the most hostile administration we've ever seen to climate action, but growing concern among local mayors, as uh, indicated in the Rising Tide Summit, of both parties 
that they're having to cope with these tides coming up into their cities. You've got the wonderful example of the octopus in the parking garage. You know, this is, is real stuff happening to people. Forbes, in your paper, you drew on the requests from people at the summit. You came up with eight recommendations. These are local officials, both parties, Republicans and Democrats, saying to the federal government, we're dealing with this right now. We need your help. We're not going to go through all eight, but... What's your first one? What did you hear from these local officials? What do they want the federal government to do? Yeah, so what I gathered the most out of the Rising Tide Summit from these local elected officials is they really need more incentives to take proactive action to address climate change, climate resilience. Right now, we've got a lot of federal policies that kind of encourage recovery, but not so much resilience. And it's really not a cost-effective manner. We've got studies that show for every dollar invested in pre-disaster resilience saves $4 in avoided damage after the disaster. So what they need is some type of signal, some type of incentive. We've got things like the community rating system that rewards local communities for taking action to mitigate flood risk by reducing some of their national flood insurance premiums. We need more mechanisms like that so these local actors, they, they're limited in capacity and resources so we can enable them to take action that they want to take, which they just don't have the resources or capacity to do now. Does this touch on FEMA insurance for monster houses in the Outer Banks? Um, I'm not that familiar with the area, but I've been down there and I see these huge homes going up on what are essentially sandbars. My understanding is that they're fully insured by the government. Am I correct or is that improved? Uh, well, it's a good question and it's ever evolving, but what I can tell you is there's more than a trillion dollars of property and structures at risk from inundation just from two feet of sea level rise in the U.S. And we're not stopping there. As you just you know, alluded to, we're still building along the coast in these vulnerable areas like the Outer Banks, Southeast Florida, a lot in Miami. Um, so there's got to be a driving mechanism that actually puts the real price and the real risk puts a monetary value there and incentivizes communities to not build uh, in the most vulnerable areas there are to sea level rise because they're the ones that currently, given the current policies, don't have to foot the bill a lot of the time. It comes to the American taxpayer. There was a report in the New York Times recently saying that these uh, mortgages on coastal properties are going to be underwater before the properties are. It's been something I've been wondering about. I've got friends with coastal homes, and I've been telling them, sell now, because it's not the flood you're worried about. It's the fact that the next buyer isn't going to be able to get a 30-year mortgage on this place. There there are a lot of homes with for sale signs uh, that are coastal properties, especially in Florida, I can attest to personally. What's your second recommendation? Well, the second recommendation is uh, we need to better integrate climate resilience in all type of investments, planning, land use management. Um, it's something the Obama administration has made uh, great strides at doing, especially in the last four years. Um, but it's momentum that we need to continue to build on. So we need to make sure if we're going to invest in infrastructure, that we do it and by incorporating uh, resilience to more extreme weather, to sea level rise. We can't just keep building uh, to buildings uh, to deal with weather that was occurring back in the 1950s because we're in a new climate era now. What would that look like concretely? I mean, it sounds like nobody's going to disagree with, you know, integrate, coordinate, uh, cooperate, but it sounds a little abstract to me. Can you give me an example of what that would look like? Sure. Well, I think we need to better account for natural infrastructure uh, as one, uh, especially along the coastlines. There's a lot of viable options with wetlands, restoration, uh, introducing parks that can retain water during storms so you're not flooding hard infrastructure that actually exacerbates flooding in communities. You're actually implementing mangroves and wetlands that can absorb a lot of that water, also mitigate some of the storm surge. 
So that would be the primary one that I think a lot of coastal uh, communities are doing. Natural infrastructure is also being implemented in a lot of urban areas uh, through green roofs. They they can retain more water. Uh, Places like Sacramento are implementing um, more more trees throughout the community because they're dealing with hotter and hotter temperatures, and that actually provides a, a natural shade for a lot of the residents and citizens. Your third recommendation of the eight that is highlighted in a terrific new blog post going up this week is public-private partnerships, something that might be receive at least a fair hearing uh, within the new administration. How does that relate to the challenge of communities becoming resilient in the face of climate threat? Well, I think the, the government at all levels of government can't solve this problem alone. There needs to be private sector buy-in. So we've had some recent examples that have been extremely successful. Rebuild by Design, the National Disaster Resilience Competition, the kind of group, uh, places like uh, Rockefeller Foundation and HUD, um, and they are providing the resources and technical capacities to local communities through a competition-based structure uh, which has been really successful at not only getting communities to develop a plan, so even if they're not selected, they still are now thinking through a climate resilience lens in their future planning, but also providing resources, uh, monetary and also technical capacity for the winners that are selected. Christina, I want to come back to you. You have taught me so much about how to make the case for climate action in a bipartisan manner. And it was your vision for the Rising Tide Summit that brought together uh, this group of mayors. Uh, Now Forbes and others have produced this wonderful set of recommendations. You now find yourself in a totally changed set of circumstances, very different than the circumstances we thought that we might have with the Trump presidency and these new appointments. How are you going to take this forward? They seem to me to be very sensible recommendations. They came out of a bipartisan group of mayors. Uh, some of the most outspoken mayors are Republicans. But the, the Congress and the new agency heads that uh, President-elect Trump has been appointing, um, it's hard to imagine a group that could be less receptive. What are you going to do? Well, I think in some ways this work becomes more important and relevant than ever in terms of the goal of trying to really elevate and amplify the voices of local elected um, leaders who are speaking to these issues, especially Republicans. So I would say a good strategy to pursue moving forward would be to be sure that those voices are heard at every level of the federal government, so in Congress, in the Senate, in the administration, about the needs, and that they understand what's at risk, because what's at risk are things that would matter to anyone. Our military bases, many of them are at really severe risk. We've had national security experts talk about that a lot, and I think elevating those voices as as, as well as Republican mayors and other Republican members. We also have a few Republican members of the House of Congress who are in places that have big impacts that are starting to speak about this, and that's a very compelling story as well. We have a Carlos Curbelo, who's a Republican from Southeast Florida, who wants to actually lead on climate change and has a lot of political room to do that, and his constituents want him to do that because it's a reality. So it's a matter of the reality that is happening and continuing to happen to sort of catch up with the politics. I think we're going to leave it there. It's a big challenge ahead. Thank you for both of you, um, Forbes and Christina, for joining me on the show. Thank you. Thank you. 
This has been the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. My guests today have been discussing a new WRI working paper, Roadmap to Support Local Climate Resilience, Lessons from the Rising Tide Summit, a meeting in New Hampshire that Christina put together that included an equal number of Republican and Democratic officials. It's an issue we're going to be coming back to again and again. I hope you'll tune in next time. The World Resources Institute podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our website. Thank you for joining us.